Welcome to If You Love This Planet. I'm Dr. Helen Caldicott, and in this program we talk about the greatest medical and environmental threats to all life, such as nuclear weapons and nuclear power, global warming, ozone depletion, toxic pollution, deforestation, and many other social and political issues that relate to global well-being. So if you love this planet, keep listening. Hello and welcome to If You Love This Planet. My special guest on the show today is Holly Barker, author and teacher at the Anthropology Department at the University of Washington in Seattle. Holly worked for the Republic of the Marshall Islands Government's Embassy in Washington, D.C. for 17 years, helping conduct research in the Marshall Islands about the effects of nuclear testing from a Marshallese perspective. She was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Marshall Islands from 1988 to 1990 and lived on a remote outer island with the Marshallese family for two years while teaching in a local elementary school. Holly is the author of Bravo for the Marshallese, which just came out in in a second edition, and she co-authored with Dr. Barbara Rose Johnson an award-winning book called Consequential Damages of Nuclear War, The Rongelap Report. Holly Barker actually wrote to me as a high school student to gather information to help fight against a possible nuclear power plant being built near her hometown in Rhode Island. So I'm very pleased to welcome her now to the program. Welcome, Holly Barker. Thank you so much for having me and see what you started off. I'm now 47 (laughs) and I wrote to you as a high school student. So you touched off a a lifetime of activism. Thank you. So that was 30 years ago, right? Yes, it was. Oh my God. I wish you were closer. Oh my God. (laughs) Well, okay. Uh, On that note, let's start. You, You wrote to me because you got involved with fighting a nuclear power plant where you lived. Tell us about that first, Holly. Yeah, absolutely. When I was in high school, I was in a physics class, and we were allowed to choose topics that we wanted to write about, about how physics um, mattered in our daily lives. And so at the time, um, our community was engaged in uh, extensive discussions about whether or not to build a nuclear power plant in the area. And my mom, who was a huge fan of yours and and still is, encouraged me to write to you to get some information about it. I knew that I was opposed, but I didn't really have the ideas about how to oppose. And so you nicely sent me a whole packet of information and a handwritten note that uh, helped me do beautifully both on on that test and also just in terms of understanding the role um, that these issues play in our lives and the way that they can affect communities. And so we were able to fight back that nuclear power plant. It didn't happen, but um, I grew up in a a town of folks who were very committed to um, expressing their views about nuclear power, nuclear energy in their communities, and were very outspoken about it. And so I feel fortunate for that. And what town was it, Holly, in in Rhode Island? Kingston, Rhode Island. Okay, so then, all right, so you successfully conquered the nuclear industry there. Then what? tell us about what you did then with your life, Holly Barker. 
Yeah, so I, when I was, I went to the University of Rhode Island where a lot of these same activists were also professors. Um, and they really focused, I think, human rights and society. And those were always important values growing up. Um, and so when I finished up my undergraduate education, I knew that I wanted to go and join Peace Corps. I'd sort of been taught to whatever you learn in the world, go out and apply it and use it. And, you know, it matters what you do in this world. And so I joined Peace Corps as soon as I finished college. And quite accidentally, they assigned me to the Marshall Islands. And even though I had been involved in nuclear issues and had been what I thought pretty immersed for a, a young adult, I had no idea about the history of the United States and the nuclear activities that had gone on there. And so um, when the Peace Corps sent me this beautiful, glossy brochure of the Marshall Islands and said, congratulations, you've been invited to serve as a volunteer, I was ecstatic. And I showed it to my mother, and she said, you can't go to the Marshall Islands. And I kind of looked at her like, why not? Why can't I go to this beautiful tropical island photographed here? And she said, because of the nuclear testing there and the radiation. I don't want you in that environment. And I had managed to, again, like as a college graduate in the United States in a very well-informed community, I had managed to come out of that process not knowing about this history of the Marshall Islands. And Mm. so, you know, I found out enough information, I think, to um, appease my, my parents and also know that my health wouldn't be of concern to go on and and teach in the Marshall Islands and go be a Peace Corps volunteer. And what I saw and what I learned there, those experiences dramatically shaped my life. Okay, so I don't know how you convinced your parents that it would be safe to go to the Marshall Islands because they're not safe, as we all know, and you must have been eating radioactive food and inhaling some radioactive elements. So tell us, describe how, how old you were when you got to the Marshall Islands where you lived, and you were there for two years, the family you lived with, and what you found out, Holly? Yeah, so um, the way I got my parents to um, buy into this is I contacted the U.S. State Department, and I contacted the U.S. government and said, hey, I've been posted to the Marshall Islands. I'm concerned about um, residual radiation there, and um, what can you tell me? And they said, it's not a problem. It's safe. There are only areas certain areas that are off limits and nobody's allowed to go there. We wouldn't send you there as a U.S. citizen if it were dangerous. It's not a problem. And so I could then pass on all that information to my parents, those reassurances that came along. Um, And then when I got out to the Marshall Islands in Peace Corps, I had asked Peace Corps to um, please place me for the two years as far away from the ground zero locations as possible. And so the testing took place up in the northwest of the country, and the Peace Corps ended up placing me down in the southeast as far away as possible from the testing. Um, And so I lived on a remote outer island with about 125 people for two years. The island was about a quarter of a mile wide and a half mile long, There were maybe 15 houses, one church, a school, um, no stores, no running water, no electricity, Um, just islanders who live very much from the land, practice very traditional um, subsistence. And so 
the food that we ate predominantly came from the local environment. Um, there were some rice and flour and other um, foodstuffs that were available on a minimal basis, but by and large it was uh, what we could cultivate uh, from the island itself. And, and so, fish. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so by living with the family, I learned the language, learned the culture, learned the way of life, um, and just I was I became the eleventh child in a large extended family. So I had ten Marshallese brothers and sisters and grandmothers and family members, um, and I just became integrated in their lives for a couple of years. It was a deep, deep privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just to be able to get to know them, and I came away with just such a respect for their um, resiliency, for their adaptability, for their knowledge of the environment, for their um, resourcefulness. It's not, for me, when I went there, I, I could not have survived a week without the Marshallese there showing me what to do on that island. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just have tremendous respect um, for their knowledge. Well, as a Peace Corps volunteer, what, what were you? What was your agenda there? What were you sent there to do? In fact, by the U.S. government, Holly Barker. Um, so the role for the Peace Corps there was um, something that the Ministry of Education in the Marshall Islands had asked for from the U.S. was to um, help bolster the the schools there, and so they brought us in to teach English because. The education system is all um, done in English, and so for children from the outer islands to get to high school and continue their education, they have to take a national exam to continue their education. So the kids on the outer island had been, um, it had been harder for them to continue, and so we were sent to the remote schools to try to bolster their mm-hmm. their education system. And okay, so you did that now. What did you learn about the tests and what the U.S. had been up to when you lived on that island for two years, or or did you not learn anything? What 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 were you exposed to, in other words, in terms of information, Holly? Yeah, in terms of information, you know, we had a couple of speakers who came in and talked to our Peace Corps cohort about it and kind of the basic facts of you know this this testing had occurred and where did it where it happened and um, that very few people were impacted by it and that um, that the residual radiation was not a problem so we were free to ask as many questions as we wanted um, during the training part um, but then when I went and lived with the Marshallese like the the more I learned the language and the culture and the closer my relationships got with people I saw that even in this location where I was, which was furthest from the testing, it was a topic that people were bringing up constantly. Um, And so, you know, I I really remember this one time where there's a Marshallese newspaper that's written in um, both English and in Marshallese. It's the only newspaper, and they would mail us out to us in Peace Corps, and we'd get it a you know, a month or so after it had come out. But I was reading um, an article about um, some Russian dumping of nuclear waste in the waters around the Marshall Islands and how the Marshallese lacked the um, Coast Guard ability to just patrol all of its waterways and how concern was developing about potential radiation being dumped in the ocean. And so 
I went to discuss this with my Marshallese papa, but it was early in my Peace Corps, and so I, I didn't quite have the language to have this in-depth conversation with him about the topic, and so I flipped through the newspaper to look for the Marshallese version of that article, and it wasn't translated at all. And so I kind of whipped off this letter to the newspaper saying, you know, gosh, when it's an issue of such importance, particularly a nuclear issue, given concerns about cumulative impacts and the history of the Marshall Islands, I think it'd be great to make sure you always put these in Marshallese as well. Um, And I got quite a response from the Peace Corps, um, who uh, I was essentially told that they would not want me to continue to talk about nuclear issues, and those oh, were government government issues and not mm-hmm. things that Peace Corps volunteers should talk about. Uh, and so I was um, discouraged from talking about nuclear issues as a Peace Corps oh, volunteer. interesting. Now, what, uh, God Almighty, what, what sort of nuclear waste were the, Ru- the Russians? What were they dumping around the Marshall Islands? Were parts of reactors or what was it, Holly? Yeah, I'm not really sure at all. You know, there wasn't much in-depth coverage about That's it. It was just one very short part. Oh. Um, so I didn't know very much about it. But, you know, it, it kind of showed me that this was a topic of political mm. importance. Yeah, and sensitivity. It, so, okay, let's go back to the end of the Second World War, ended in 1945, and then I think in '46 somehow... I suppose the Marshall Islands were occupied by the Japanese. The Americans won the war, and then they took over the Marshall Islands, um, and and called it. What did they call it? The uh, the Trust Territory of the, the Pacific yeah. They, were, they they called it the Trust Territory. In other words, America took over in a trusting way, or they gave it to America in a trusting way, so that. The Americans would look after the people. Now, how many islands are there in the Marshall sort of archipelago and how many people at that time lived there, Holly Barker? Uh, Yeah, so there are like 33 clusters of islands. There are literally thousands of tiny islands, but they're clustered into 33 larger groups that span about a million square miles of ocean. Uh, and so back during the testing program, um, I think there were somewhere twenty-five to 30,000 Marshallese living in the country. And so um, you're right that um, uh, the Japanese and the Americans fought during World War II in the Marshall Islands. It, uh, the Marshalls had been occupied by Japan before that. And when it got to be the war, it was a fairly brutal military Japanese regime. And so when the Americans came along and expunged the Japanese, the Marshallese were were thrilled. Mm. Uh, And so Mm. when the Americans then came and, you know, sort of quote-unquote asked permission to um, detonate nuclear weapons in the country and to use their lands for proving grounds, um, the Marshallese, you know, wanted to help their new friends who had just helped them... um, uh, you know, vanquished what had been a brutal regime. And so uh, the United States asked the Marshallese if they could conduct testing there. Uh, and then from 1946 to 1958, they conducted 67 atmospheric nuclear weapons tests in the Marshall Islands. And these tests were designed to produce as much local fallout as possible. Oh, my so God. That 
essentially so it could create a laboratory where the U.S. government could study the effects of radiation both on human beings and the environment because at the time there was concern about U.S. citizens should um, the country be attacked by nuclear weapons. There was also concerns about how U.S. soldiers would fare if they were um, part of a nuclear exchange. And so the information from the Marshall Islands became crucial. That makes me feel like vomiting. I, I can't believe that the Americans, the so-called, so-called civilised society, would take a group of 25,000 people living on coral atolls and use them as guinea pigs to see what the hell and, and, and explode filthy, dirty, radioactive bombs all over them. I mean, how dare they? I just, it's, it's almost beyond the scope of my imagination that they would even think of doing a thing like that, Holly Barker. Yeah, there's no question. It's absolutely horrific. And it's, you know, there, it's certainly, it's a part of, it's a Cold War culture. It's a different culture. Yeah, but who do these people think they were? Were they physicists who decided to do this in conjunction with the U.S. military? Who were they? I mean, they're yeah. probably all men anyway, let me be frank. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, They certainly were. But, yeah. I mean, there's. There are certainly elements of racism here, no question about it, where, and we even see this um, evidence in some of the historical documents from the time where it's, um, there's one document in particular that says, while the Marshallese are not quite like us, like Western civilized man, they are closer to us than the animals that we've been studying. It was the mice at the time. And so it was seen that, you know, the mice, between the mice and the white Western civilized people were the Marshallese. This and is so unbelievable. Definitely um, racist notions going on. And so one of my big concerns, and I guess one of my areas of interest, has been looking at these human radiation experiments Um with each one of these nuclear detonations that was conducted, there was a whole list of scientific experiments that went along with them, like, um, you know, how radiation into the ocean and how that was evident in seaweed and fish and everything and um, in the marine food chain. There would be other terrestrial ones looking at plants and uptakes of coconuts. There was everything from looking at the wind speed and the wave pattern changes. And each one of these different tests was designated in a number, like um, 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, and so on. Um, and in the 1990s, when I was working at the Marshall Islands Embassy in Washington, D.C., um, the Marshall Islands government had put in requests with the Clinton administration to declassify and provide some of the government documents from the era, information that the Marshallese had never seen before. And tens of thousands of documents were literally arriving at the embassy doorsteps. Um, and we were going through materials that people, again, hadn't seen before. And we found this one document that was a list of all the experiments conducted in conjunction with the Bravo test, which was the largest of all the detonations. 15 megatons, 15 million tons of TNT equivalent, um, equal to a 1,000 or more Hiroshima bombs, the biggest test that America ever conducted, right? And it was an atmospheric test, wasn't it? 
Absolutely. That's exactly the one. Um, and, you know, for previous tests that were much smaller than the Bravo tests, um, communities that were downwind from the proving grounds were evacuated as a precaution. And then on the day of the Bravo event, even though there was documentation that the weather was, the wind was blowing from the ground zero location of Bikini Atoll towards this area where Rongalak was the closest inhabited atoll um, near to the ground zero. So they, they knew that the winds were heading there. They knew that they were testing a larger weapon than they had ever tested before. But a decision was made purposely to not evacuate the people, even though they had done that again, for smaller tests that they had done previously. Um, and there was also a U.S. naval ship that was anchored right at the lagoon of Rongelap on the morning before the test. And so when the detonation occurred and the radiation came to where the inhabited population was, the naval ship recorded that and chugged off to safety Um, without evacuating the Marshallese. So they knew that there were people living there. They knew that the radiation had arrived, but they did not evacuate the Marshallese people. And so they were left there for about um, a little more than two days on the islands before the U.S. government came in. And at that point, I was talking about those project numbers. This is where Project 4.1 kicks in. Um, We learned about this in U.S. government documents, and Project 4.1 was a top-secret medical program to understand the effects of ionizing radiation on human beings. And so um, the Rongalapis and also the population that was living on Utrecht, another downwind population a bit further away than Rongelap, um, the U.S. government evacuated these populations and brought them over to Kwajalein Atoll, which is a U.S. military facility. And um, what I think is so surprising to me about this is, um, you know, in the United States, we we learn about the wrongful internment of Japanese-American citizens during World War II where, you know, as a precautionary measure, um, Japanese-American citizens were rounded up and weren't trusted and were put into these internment camps. Um, But what most people don't know are that the Marshallese were also um, put into encampments. And so the communities from Rongelap and Utrecht, they were put behind barbed wire fences on the U.S. military facility. What, just, so after they they're, just after they were exposed to the radiation? Yes. What? Yes. They so brought them they and put be... them in, in prison camps behind barbed wire after they'd yes. been... Yes, ex- where they were enrolled in Project 4.1 without their knowledge and without their consent. And so each person was given an experiment number and each person was enrolled in this program. And then the U.S. government also went um, to other communities in the Marshall Islands and found control populations to match um, the populations from Rongelap and Utrecht. So they found controls by age and gender um, so that they could have a corresponding match. And so like any experiment, any scientific experiment, there's often the control group to compare the experiences of the populations. And so this this population was tracked 
all the way through the 1990s uh, in terms of documenting the effects of radiation exposure on the group. And it included, in parts, um, returning these populations to islands known to be um, contaminated with the radiation where there were still residual amounts, and then documenting how their bodies absorbed radiation from the environment. So they would document increases um, in radiation uptake in the human populations by living on those contaminated atolls, and then they would make comparisons. Okay, so what happens from radiation that people are exposed to from detonations, and how does that compare to radiation that people are exposed to um, from living in a contaminated environment? And they conducted numerous studies to better understand these issues. How long, uh, so so they brought these people who'd just been contaminated with fallout and it fell like snow on them, I, I remember that, and and they, they the, the people experienced beta burns. I mean, beta radiation is, is given off by radioactive elements um, and it's very um, damaging to the skin um, and it's an electron emitted from an unstable atom and so they, they had burns actual burns on their skin many of them lost their hair many of them experienced symptoms of acute radiation illness with their hair falling out and developing really bad nausea and vomiting and diarrhea um how long so they were brought from their exposed islands Rongelap and Utrecht to Kwajalein to the military base where they were put in a prison camp behind barbed wire how long did they stay in that camp Holly Barker um, yeah, so some of them, most of them came by naval ship, and um, while they were on the ship, uh, there was a decontamination process that began where they hosed down a lot of um, the Marshallese, really just essentially had them stripped down and hosed them down to try to remove some of the radiation. Um, and then when they got to Kwajalein and brought them to that area, um, the barbed wire was set up so that the people could not leave that area, but also their family and friends who were living on Kwajalein Atoll were not able to come in and see their relatives. They knew that there was um, that something had happened, and they knew that their their family members were not well, but they weren't allowed access to them. Um, for the two communities, uh, the people from Utrecht Atoll, which is a little further away, um, I believe they were there for about two weeks' time, uh, and the Rongalapis were there for about two months' time before the whole community was relocated to a different area. And, were and that, so, and right. What were they doing, investigating them, doing their blood counts and, and the like and the like? Were they given any treatment or sympathy or understanding or medical care? Yeah, so um, I've probably conducted about, you know, 200 or so oral histories with Marshallese about their experience with the testing and done many, many with um, the folks from Rongelap Atoll. And over and over again, one of the themes that comes up in the interviews with the Rongelapis is that they 
they didn't feel like they were being healed um, by the U.S. government researchers. They felt more that they were being studied, and that's that's why the word guinea pig has made it into the Marshallese language. Um, for example, that um, guinea there are no that rodent the guinea pig does not exist in the Marshall Islands, but that that term needed to be borrowed from English, and so it's it's now a term that's known and understood in the Marshall Islands. Um, but one of the themes that really emerges is that, again, they were being studied. And so, you know, for instance, um, I interviewed one woman who talked about having burns in her feet that were all the way down to her bones, where her bones were exposed. Um, and she was in agony, and she was given no painkiller, no treatment, no nothing. They just kept photographing her burns over oh, and over God again. Almighty. And so, you know, they went through some basic decontamination, which was going down to the lagoon and seeing if they could scrub off the radiation, and they would use the Geiger counters to see, okay, how much radiation did they have going down? Does bathing in salt water help in any way? But it, people didn't feel like it was an earnest effort to try to help them or look after their best interests, that it was much more um, of a study. Now, so, Kay... Have you? This is Project Four Point One, Holly. Do you have any documentation of the people and their health impacts uh, in those first few weeks and few months when they were studied by military officers and I suppose doctors? I mean, there must have been doctors there, right? Medical people. Yeah. It yeah, reminds um, me of the Nazi experiments. Yeah, yeah, and this is um, around the time that the U.S. is very active in development of the Nuremberg Codes for some of these same issues dealing with Nazi Germany. And so, um, yeah, I think I think those linkages are valid. Um, uh, yeah, so there's 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 scant documentary evidence of this. Um, one they of must the reasons- have documented it. I mean, it, it, uh, have they not released the documents to you and right. to the Marshallese? Is that what is that what's happened? They're still sitting on this data. Yeah, well, that's certainly a factor of it. There, are, there are many documents that have not been released, and they remain um, too closely linked to U.S. national security interests. Oh, national so security! What, what ridiculous nonsense! National security. Yeah. I mean, it's like right. saying, "Well, we we experimented on the Jews, and we did this and this and this to them." You know, right. for national security, it's like the Nazis talking. That's absolute right. rot. Right. So but they say they won't release them because of national security. Yeah, that's been one piece of it. Um, another piece is that a lot of the documents have been destroyed. Um, one issue that the Marshall Islands government has raised continually is why were there no investigations into the multiple fires that destroyed and burned many of the documents from this era. And so uh, the Marshall Islands government has counted at least four different quote-unquote, accidental fires that destroyed medical records, photographs, and other evidence from this area, um, including, you know, one safe that was opened up in the middle of the night and all the contents inside um, were burned, um, a fire of all the medical records at the hospital in Madro, a file of all the medical records that were in the um, Kwajalein Hospital as well, and then a fire of all the backup records that had been kept in Ohio 
as well. And so there are at least four different fires. And the Marshall Islands government has raised the point that, you know, when there are accidents like that or fires, there are usually investigations, but there never has been or was an investigation into the destruction of those documents. Well, I read somewhere yesterday where the women were giving birth to these um, babies, jellyfish babies that had no features of human beings at all or babies like like bunches of grapes, I mean, just revolting, revolting congenital abnormalities. Right. And and the American military moved in and one general s- said, what did he say? What's the quote from him? He They burnt the photographs that the women had collected. And what did he say, Holly? Um, I'm trying to remember which exact quote this was. <laughs> He said, watch um, you know, this, these, these don't mean anything or something, just watch this and we'll burn them. He, I mean, he, I, I, <laughs> as I read this material, Holly, I just, my blood turned to icicles and yeah. these people, we haven't finished this interview yet, but these people should be tried under the Nuremberg Principles, under the yeah. Nuremberg Principles. And I feel so strongly about it and I know that they, you know, they push the Marshallese Islanders away and their lawyers with sort of euphemistic statements and stuff and and the sort of jargon that they use, but we need to go for their throats. I mean, these people, a lot of them are dead, I know. I mean, there was the Brookhaven National Labs full of doctors who used to go once a year to examine the people in, in the Marshall Islands, to examine them, not treat them, There is no oncology unit at the Marshall Islands to treat the patients with cancer. I mean, uh, and it's still ongoing, Holly Barker. Right, definitely true. And I interviewed one Marshallese woman who gave birth to, um, you know, the Marshallese have a whole language or rich vocabulary to describe the birth. And that's one way that I think that the anthropology sort of documents from a Marshallese perspective how they're viewing these ideas and what they're thinking about it. They had to invent a whole language to describe these miscarriages that, you know, in Marshallese there's a proper word for miscarriage or stillbirth because they've always existed before the testing. But after the testing, their birth anomalies were so consistent um, that they needed to identify new words to describe them. So as you were talking about the jellyfish baby, where babies are born and have translucent skin or no bones and they can see their brains or their hearts pulsing, this is a common enough term that women all over the Marshall Islands use it to describe the children that they gave birth to. And so I interviewed one woman who had given birth um, to um, a, a severely deformed child at the Kwajalein Hospital. And she said the researchers came and they took her baby from her, which was still alive at the time, took it outside and took photographs of it and flipped it over in every different position and took photographs of it and then brought the child back in and put it back in her arms and later on the baby died. And so, you know, it 
the fact that she had given birth became something of scientific interest to her. And you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, the violence of the testing program for the Marshallese is not over. Yes, the testing ended in 1958, and so the detonations are not going on anymore. But the violence of the testing continues in the bodies and on the bodies of the Marshallese every day who have residual radiation in their environment, but also the fact that there's no oncologist, as you were saying, in the Marshall Islands. So if you're Marshallese and you're exposed to radiation, and we know that radiation causes cancer, so you've got a higher chance of contracting cancer if you're in the Marshall Islands, radiation can still, I mean, cancer can still be a death sentence for Marshallese because even if you can afford it, you can't purchase chemotherapy in the Marshall Islands. It doesn't exist. And so that that violence continues on the Marshallese because when they become ill, they cannot get treatment in their country. And so they have to, those who are able have to leave the country in order to get the cancer care that they need. But don't the Americans come in and and supervise and, and if someone's diagnosed with cancer, take them away and, and, and treat them at the appropriate facilities on the mainland and for free? I mean, don't they do that? For a very small group of people, so those who lived on Rongelap or Utrecht, those two initial groups that had been evacuated after the Bravo test, if they lived on one of those two atolls on March 1st, 1954, um, they are eligible for health care that the U.S. government provides. Um, that's the legal designation. And so if you're a Marshallese and you're exposed to radiation from one of the 66 other nuclear detonations, or you lived on another atoll that was very close to one of those atolls, but not one of those two specific areas, or if you were born after the testing program and grew up and lived in a contaminated environment, none of those people are eligible for any U.S. government assistance. And so um, for some people, they are uh, they do receive U.S. government care, um, but it's only for radiogenic illnesses that are considered specifically related to the bombs and not for any health condition. And so there's been a lot of um, tension over which illnesses um, can be categorized in which ways. Well, it's very hard to know because the immune system is depleted by radioactive elements and uh, radiation exposure, and that can lead to all sorts of illnesses and diseases. And we know from Chernobyl and, and Fukushima that the incidence of diabetes is really high and then thyroid abnormalities, uh, hypofunction and not a, an abnormally functioning thyroid is related to radiation exposure, let alone cancers. Tell me, Holly Barker, what are, what are the statistics? Surely because these people have been extensively studied by the US government, they're guinea pigs, as we've said, um, and, and that's kind of been admitted by the US government. What are the statistics on cancer and diseases? Have they taken these populations? And, 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 and I'd like to know what the incidence of cancer is and malfunctioning of the thyroid and diabetes and heart disease and other diseases related to radioactive contamination. Yeah, um, you know, it's a really good question. I think it's something that everybody's still trying to get their their hands around. And despite all the research that's gone out on in the Marshall Islands, it hasn't always been research that 
has been for the health and well-being of the Marshallese. And so while it is a very studied and documented area, it was mostly to extract the knowledge that was related to the military that would strengthen the U.S. Um, um, military goals, but it was not meant to um, help the Marshallese address their, their health issues. But I don't way. really so, mean that, Holly. I mean, they... They obviously got data from these people, these guinea pigs, about the health impacts of being exposed to radiation and radioactive fallout. Therefore, their health data, their disease data, must be available. They must have it. I mean, yeah. and that's relevant to soldiers being exposed to radioactive elements. That's relevant to people right. in cities being exposed to bombs dropping on them. It's all relevant. So where's the data? Yeah, yeah. Where is it? If that, yeah, if that data exists, it's not data that's been made publicly really? available. Really? So no one knows the incidence of cancer amongst those populations? It, there have been some say. I'm definitely not an expert in this area, uh, and that there are studies that have been conducted, and but most of it, there are so many complicating factors to getting at these numbers in terms of, Many of these people were in remote areas without doctors, without transportation. Um, there was no epidemiological study set up. You know, a cancer registry wasn't set up in the Marshall Islands till just a couple of years ago. And so um, this, there are a lot of complicating factors to getting this It data. seems to me there's a cover-up. And um, did they therefore just take data on the acute medical effects uh, for the next few years uh, after the tests when the Brookhaven National Lab doctors went out once a year to study the people. Um, what I would like as a physician to, is to get my hands on all the data that must be documented and stored at Brookhaven National Labs. I mean, I think that's what we must must get. We must get it. I'm prepared yeah. to... You know, work with you and the lawyers representing the Marshallese and, and just I will not put up with the rubbish that they, they give you to say, well, it's not available or we didn't study it. I know that's a lie because they were studying it. Now, is it possible that years later, like right now, the people who are still getting cancers, obviously, and people who are still having deformed babies and having miscarriages and the like, maybe they've stopped studying them now. Maybe they don't want to know about it, otherwise they'd have to treat them. Maybe they don't want to know about it about them because there will be huge compensation uh, claims made by those people, like to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, I would think. Um, but, but from... A, I can't tell you how I'm feeling. I mean, I, I've got rage in my blood and my bones about this. The sort of rage that people felt after the Nazis were tried for their human experimentation um, at the yeah. Nuremberg trials. And this can't go unnoticed, undocumented, and just be swept under the rug. Something must be done about this. And I'm prepared to help you and work with you and the lawyers to uncover this data. Yeah, well, that is just such welcome news. And, um, you know, there's a whole host of people who would welcome your um, expertise. And, and it's always been very difficult to have an independent assessment of these issues. And so 
as you were saying before, the, the data has always been produced by and controlled by the U.S. government. And so at the time of the testing, the Marshallese didn't have um, Marshallese physicians or health physicists who are collecting their own independent data. So they've had to rely always on the information that has come from the U.S. And, and so the lying, the lying. They've been lied to. Yeah. yeah. And so having an independent... Um, uh, expert who could work with on these issues would be greatly valued. Um, and it's certainly something that's needed because, as you were talking about before, I think what makes this awful is that nobody knows about it. And so that the, the Marshallese suffering takes place in silence without our, our support or our understanding or our rage that you're talking about. Like, the only thing that, that's worse than the fact that this has happened is to allow this to have happened and us not know about it. It's, yeah. it's the ignorance about it is just as angering to me that, you know, in, if you think about everybody in the world knows the term bikini from the bikini bathing suit. So few people know that that bathing suit, the name of that bathing suit came from the, is a Marshallese word. That's some Marshallese sacred homeland. That's the name of the atoll where they did the detonations, where the French fashion designer was looking for an inspiring word to put on his new garment that was hot and explosive. And uh, and so he took inspiration from a Marshallese word. And part of what I think... Um, gets at me, sort of the, the gall of this is that women throughout the world who have the privilege of healthy bodies, who can wear the name of the testing site of the Marshallese, the bikini, and have their bodies are, are those who enjoy health and privilege in a way of life, while the Marshallese bodies are where this namesake is from, are meant to stay in a country with inadequate um, uh, health care to make their bodies healthy. They don't have that luxury of having the healthy body that can occupy a bikini bathing suit. And so the inequities are are everywhere. And so for me, just the, uh, you know, we're, we're not bad people. I, I know at times governments um, behave in ways we're not proud of, but I don't think in general people are, Americans are bad people, for instance. There are just so many people who don't know about this yes. history. It's ignorance. And and the Nuremberg principles state that every person is morally responsible for what his or her society does. And if you keep the people ignorant, then they can't be morally responsible because they don't know. I. It's interesting, Holly, I read years ago that the name Bikini comes from the fact that when they exploded a bomb, they split the island in two. And therefore, the bathing suit, which is split in two, is named after the bikini atoll. Is that not right? Yeah, I hadn't heard that mm. part of it before. It could be. Yeah. It very well could be. Yeah. I don't know, for instance, do you happen to have that show in Australia, SpongeBob SquarePants? Well, yes, that we have, yeah. Part? Okay, so you, do you know where those characters live? Where no, they are located? no. So they live on Bikini Bottom is the name of the place where those characters inhabit. And the characters in SpongeBob SquarePants are all mutated characters. And this shows the funniness of the show comes from the fact that these creatures who live in Bikini Bottom are mutated. 
And so it shows kind of the, the disconnect that we as a society have where the word bikini and radiation and mutations does not um, trigger the history of the Marshallese and the testing program and the experiences in the Marshallese. Rather, we have become so disconnected from that history that we can sit and watch that television show and laugh at mutated radiation um, figures without having a connection back to the Marshallese. And so it just shows how powerful that disconnect has been for us. Well, yeah, and, 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 and ignorance, really. So to get to the really bottom line, I, I, I can help you not by going to the Marshall Islands and examining people and the like. That's a huge thing. What I want is the data. What I want yeah. is the documentation from Brookhaven National Labs, the Department of Energy and the Department of Defence. And I yeah. don't know if many Freedom of Information Acts have been filed, um, mm -hmm. but it's imperative that we obtain this information. I'm prepared to write an article about this. But I need to know, Holly, bottom line, what data do we have and what data is missing and we do not have and extrapolate from there from a medical perspective how large is this population now? I know that the Ronglat people were um, removed from the island and I think they went back for a while till they discovered that the coconut crabs that they ate and the coconuts and stuff were contaminated with plutonium and then they were removed again. So the food is, is, is terribly contaminated. I know that on one island, um, I can't remember which they've... They've excavated huge amounts of radioactive soil and buried it in a big pit that was created by a bomb being exploded and covered it with a concrete lid. And now that's all leaking. So the islands, um, as well as the Russians dumping radioactive waste in the oceans around them, um, have become radioactive waste dumps in their own right and people are still living there. I mean... Um, I, I still don't really have a clear picture, I suppose, from a scientific and medical perspective. What actually went on, what is going on now, what the population is, what their cancer rate is now, um, what the congenital deformities, the incidence are, is, at, and the like. Yeah, and I think that's the kind of documentation that Dr. Neil Palafox is trying to put together. And once he's able to give us a sense of what we know, we can look at what holes are missing there. But again, your your expertise and review of these materials would be um, strongly welcomed by the Marshallese, and I'd be happy to put you in touch um, with the right Marshallese government leaders who can work with you to set that process up. Yeah. You're an anthropologist yourself, are you not, Holly Barker? I am, yes. So have you been looking at all of this situation from an anthropological perspective and have you written about it? Yes. Um, so I've looked at how, um, how the nuclear testing has affected the Marshallese culture and in particular I've looked at the linguistic changes, some of which I was describing earlier mm -hmm. about how the language has evolved to show the radiation impacts, um, uh, new impacts that they needed to create words for to 
communicate to one another. Um, I've looked at that piece of it. I've looked at the effects of relocation on some of the communities. As you were saying before, some of these communities, particularly Rongelap, has been ping-ponged back and forth. And what that means from an islander's perspective is very different from what it would mean to a, a Westerner's perspective. For instance, I, as an American, could never understand exactly what that would mean to not be able to live on my sacred homelands because I'm I'm not indigenous. And so if somebody contaminated my area in Seattle, I would, I'd begrudgingly leave and I'd go somewhere else, but I wouldn't lose my ancestral ties or... Um, I wouldn't lose my rights to property development or to cultivate resources or, you know, my, my whole culture and identity and history is not tied physically to a piece of land in the same way. And so I tried to understand that from a Marshallese perspective. Mm. Who is Neil Palafox who's doing these studies to try and collate the amount of cancer that has occurred, Holly Barker? Who is he? Yeah, Dr. Neil Palafox is wonderful. He was U.S. Public Health Service in the Marshall Islands, I believe for about 10 years or so. Um, he is at the John Burns School of Medicine at the University of Hawaii, and he's been instrumental in terms of um, uh, helping to train Marshallese physicians. So he's worked to help bring Marshallese through U.S. medical schools and get the training they need uh, so that the Marshallese can begin to look at and address their issues in their, their own way. Um, and for a time, he helps um, to address the health care needs of the communities most affected by the testing program. So he's got a long history of um, trust and respect with the Marshallese. And he's trying to gather relevant data now on the, on the cancer incidents? Yes, he's trying to... There have The National Cancer Institute had done um, an initial survey to look at some of the data coming out of the Marshall Islands, and they did find increased cancers. And again, I'm not an expert in this area. I'd have to review the findings before I could comment on it adequately, but they, they did find some excesses of cancer in the Marshall Islands. Some excesses, Island. I'm sure they're enormous excesses. They have to be, they absolutely have to be. So, well, I would refer people to a film called Nuclear Savage, a documentary film made by Adam Jonas Horowitz, which is one of the more powerful films that I've ever watched. Um, the subtitle is The Islands of Secret Project 4.1, to which you referred, Holly Barker, about the human experimentation on these people. Um, how can people... Well, he says it's not for public use. Has it been released yet, Nuclear Savage? Holly, what should people do if they want to watch it? Yeah, so this film is just um, making the rounds now. Mostly it's been at film festivals at this point, and I imagine that it will become increasingly accessible after that. Um, but if anybody is looking for the film, um, they could contact uh, Adam Horowitz probably by his email, or uh, I'm happy to be a contact to help people get in touch if they if you want me to give you my email address. Yes, please, please give your email and your webpage, Holly Barker, to the people listening to this show. Okay, my email address is hmbarker, B-A-R-K-E-R, at u.washington.edu.
Okay. And do you have a, a web page? I don't. Okay. I'm not. That's all right. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so people can write to you about any relevant questions that they have. I want to thank you incredibly for this um, most extraordinary uh, expose, really, of, of the American government and its past in terms of nuclear weapons and nuclear experimentation on human beings. Um, the, there was one thing I forgot to mention was that these people who are so exposed by the tests, some of them were in, in fact taken away to other islands and injected with radioactive elements to do further experiments on them, weren't they, were they not? Uh, there were two different confirmed human radiation experiments that the, the White House had looked into. Um, and one is where there were some injections that added additional radiation um, to the bodies of some Marshallese. And another is where they had them drink a radioactive substance to see if it could work as a chelating agent to remove some of the radiation from their bodies. Um from my understanding, there were minute amounts of radiation, but it was also understood that this additional radiation would have no therapeutic benefit to the Marshallese. It was more to advance the knowledge and understanding of the U.S. And so um, I guess the egregious part of this, even if it was a um, tiny amount of radiation, is that there was no consent or understanding when it was an experiment. And it was also people that we worry about cumulative impacts of radiation. And so um, there has never been an, any attempt at all to look at cumulative impacts, and the exposures have always been looked at in isolation. Oh. And so the larger issue is how do we look at how radiation has affected Marshallese who move through multiple locations and different times and move through hot spots and move through different contamination zones and exposed to multiple weapons. Mm -hmm. And um, there's been no understanding of that at all. Well, uh, on that cheery note, <laughs> we've come to the end of our time, Holly Barker. I, I once again thank you so much for this uh, fascinating uh, expose um, and we hope to talk to you again in the future. Yeah, well, I want to thank you for having this topic as um, one of the issues on your radio show. And again, like the Mar Marshallese need allies on this and for people to understand so that they can whatever resources we have wherever we are to to best address this yeah. situation okay. and thank you for being inspiring to all of us on nuclear issues thank thank you holly bye-bye my guest today on if you love this planet was author teacher and anthropologist at the anthropology department at the university of washington in seattle holly barker what a fascinating scary interview that was ah uh. anyway uh if you want to go to the website look at other interviews or or donate some money to help us keep going on this terribly important show uh, go to if you love this org and there's a donate now button there thanks for listening again and we'll be back with you next week with another fascinating interview bye for now You've been listening to If You Love This Planet with Dr. Helen Caldicott. This program is broadcast on community radio across the United States, including our host station, KPFT Pacifica, Houston, Texas. This program is produced and engineered by Jazz Williams, 
co-produced by Scott Powell, and our publicity and outreach are coordinated by Amanda Bellerby. To listen to previous shows or to make a donation, go to our website, ifyoulovethisplanet.org.